Hey girls, and welcome to the Great Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jody, and today I am going to throw you, hip throw you into a conversation that I was just having with a new friend of mine. My guest today was Donovan Riley. He's a teacher, preacher, father, podcaster, author, BJJ practitioner, and coach. And these are a few of my favorite things. I discovered him at the intersection of Jesus and jujitsu. Now, I'll let you decide which one of these means the most to him. But seriously, his journey is a fascinating one. If you've ever been hurt by the church, if you are just downright confused by the teachings of the Christian church, listen carefully to his journey and how he found Jesus and how jujitsu was a big part of his journey to healing and health and truth. He's a little bit of a church rebel, which is why I like him as well. One of his podcasts is called the Banned Books Podcast, so if you're ever wondering what kind of books have been banned from the church, he has a very big list of them that he reads and talks about in his podcast. So without further ado, let's get into this. I'm literally just going to jump you into the middle of our conversation. Let's get right to it. Wait a minute, I forgot to introduce The Great Flip. Welcome to The Great Flip. If you've never been to The Great Flip podcast, thank you for coming, and I'm glad that uh, we can connect what I'm doing for girls and faith and jujitsu and what Donovan's doing for the church at large and in his ministry have come together. But real quick, The Great Flip is online self-defense and life skills for girls ages 6 to 18. Girls have the opportunity to learn self-defense inspired by Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I found myself as a mom with two daughters wanting to bridge the gap between I've never learned self-defense, but I know it's valuable. My husband and I want to give this to our daughters and the crazy people like Donovan. People there are sometimes absolutely insane and love the sport, love jujitsu. And how do I bring those two worlds together? Because when I went in, it was very intimidating as a mother and with my two daughters, but I kind of went crazy, went little Donovan Riley crazy and fell in love with it. But I want to bring that type of love and passion to more girls. It's still a very much a male-dominated sport. So I created The Great Flip, which is introduction to self-defense, an introduction to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But subscribe to the videos and roll out some mats at home, yoga mats, some interlocking mats. So it's a little bit soft because we will be learning how to fall, learn how to move on the ground. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a grappling sport, so a lot of the movement is on the ground, which, by the way, is where a lot of self-defense situations find themselves for girls. So I want wanted this to be a positive experience for girls. They can learn at home. They can learn with their friends, their youth group, their scouts. They can learn in a safe way. Uh, The Great Flip does have a national program partnership with the American Heritage Girls. Shout out to American Heritage Girls. It's a great way for girls to learn in a safe environment with trusted family and friends. TheGreatFlip.com offers nutrition and faith-based motivation for our daughters. So I have always been seeking people who can best communicate the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and help people, help our girls understand how much God loves them and pours grace out onto them daily. So when the podcast is done, be sure to check out thegreatflip.com and share it with the favorite girls and ladies in your life. And here we go to the conversation between Donovan and I. Share your journey to those mats. You know, you have the you right. know, your faith mat and you have your jujitsu right. mat. So share yep. that journey again on how those places have collided. Right. Well, the two-pronged question, right? Two-pronged yeah. attack here. So first, the faith part of it, because that came first, that 
I was born into an atheistic household. My dad did two tours in Vietnam. He's a Vietnam vet. Uh, first tour as infantry, second tour as a long-range reconnaissance pearl, LERP, which is uh, they were soldiers who were dropped behind enemy lines to do scouting and other things. And so when he came back from Vietnam uh, as one veteran uh, I've listened to said, thousands and thousands of young men died in Vietnam, and the rest, uh, the, the rest that died came home. And so my dad came home, but he was dead inside. And before he went to Vietnam, he was an artist. He was a church musician. He played the piano at his local Methodist church on Sunday mornings. And he was a poet, and he had aspirations to be an artist or a musician or something along those lines. And then when he came back from Vietnam, that was gone. Uh, his faith was gone. He didn't believe in God anymore. Or at the very least, I compare him to Ivan Karamazov in Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov, that in that novel, Ivan isn't an atheist in the sense of he does not believe there's a God, but rather he does believe there's a God, but based on what he has witnessed in the world and how we treat one another as human beings, he cannot accept God as God because of the violence and the conflict and the tragedy. And one of the analogies that Ivan uses is when, this is set in Russia in the 1800s, you would have wealthy men, wealthy landowners who would go out hunting, and sometimes for fun they would hunt for people. They would hunt for peasants, so they would... And then they would let their dogs tear women and children apart for their entertainment. And so Ivan's then justification for, as he says, turning in my ticket and saying, it's not that I, I don't believe in God, it's just that I'm returning my ticket. I don't want to believe in a God that would let that happen. And I think that's very much my father's experience also, because in the, the first day that they were on the ground in Vietnam, in the first battle, his whole company of 100 men were completely wiped out by the end of the day, and he was the only survivor. And so to have your best friend vaporized in front of you by an explosion and to watch everyone around you die and to take shrapnel damage and to be severely wounded and yet live and then be sent back and told you still have X number of months to go. I think that destroyed his faith. It destroyed his belief, both in God and humanity, I think, because when he came back, like I said, he was very much dead. And so growing up, he was just he was the guy in the recliner who watched ESPN when he wasn't working and drank heavily, abused drugs. Um, was very abusive because he suffers suffers from um, profound PTS. And that was the environment I grew up in was one of addiction and abuse. As a consequence, when I got older then, I started to use and abuse alcohol and drugs to self-medicate and always felt, uh, even when I was five, six years old, always felt that I was out of step with the rest of my classmates. I got along really well with old people. So I would often run away from my mom in the in the store and she would always find me. She would look for the old person. And then because she, she knew I'd be sitting next to that person. And as my mom tells it, I would have one, two or three hour conversations with old people while she was shopping. And from the time I was three, four years old, I would just sit and talk with old people or I would uh, have relationships with people that are younger than I am. But I've never really gotten along with people in my own peer group to this day even. And so growing up, I had that the abuse part of it, the addiction aspect, and then also feeling like I was out of sync. I was out of step with everyone else around you. I didn't feel like I thought the same as everybody else wasn't interested in the same things as everybody else around me. And so I always felt alienated. We moved a lot. We never lived anywhere longer than four years because my dad was a teacher. And because of his alcoholism and addiction and the PTS, he was just, he was not able to maintain a, a steady job for very long. Ironically, he was, wherever he taught, he was the teacher of the year. <laughs> he was voted wow. by the students as teacher of the year. So when he was teaching, the person that he projected himself to be exemplary, and praiseworthy. But then when he would get home, he'd take the mask off and then it would all come out on me and my mom. And so when I got old enough, I just got out of the house as quickly as possible. And like I said, abused uh, alcohol and drugs myself. 
and everything that goes along with that, the people that you attract then and the friendships, if you want to call them that, that you develop and so forth, that all revolve around addiction and partying. And so along with that, then I was an atheist because I was raised by atheists and looking at my life, I could, I didn't have to look very far to say, well, obviously there's no God because look at my life. And yet there was something about whether it was the way that I was wired or, or like I said, out of step, it just, I constantly kept coming back to the question of what's the point though? Even I remember even when I was six, seven, eight years old, I would be asking, like, what's the point of my life? And so by the time I was 12 years old, 13 years old and starting to hit puberty, I became obsessed with death and obsessed with life and death matters. And I got very involved with topics like war and conflict and violence and got into poets and authors and reading history and from everything from the Arthurian legends and Beowulf to the history of World War II to the Civil War to the Greeks and the Spartans and so forth like we were talking about before we went on air. And all that propelled me forward then, raised in conflict, but also being very interested in the nature of conflict and violence, um, you know, just interpersonally, but also on a, on a big scale. So by the time I got done with college, and I went to college on a, a music scholarship, and then I switched to art, then back to music, then back to art, um, because with my addiction, it was so difficult for me to maintain a grade point average. So eventually I settled on art because there were no tests and graduated <laughs> with an art degree with a minor in music, studied jazz, and uh, my area of concentration in art was abstract expressionism and painting. So I, as one person joked a couple of years ago, I graduated with a degree in coffee house, essentially. Like that's all I'm, that's all I'm really equipped to do is work in a coffee house. But I remember then uh, the summer of my last year at college, we got a video from Blockbuster Video. For those of you who are old enough to remember Blockbuster Video. And it was UFC. And my friend brought this to my dorm room and said, you've got to watch this. These guys kill each other. There's no rules. And it's just like blood sport. So we watched it and I watched Royce Gracie choke out and armbar all of these big dudes wearing this, you know, these white pajamas and everything. And, and then, of course, being college students, we immediately tried to reenact everything we had seen in the fights <laughs> and ended up injuring each other. <laughs> but I remember from that initial viewing, that was 94, probably when I watched that the first time, I wanted to do it. But because of my addiction, because of my lifestyle at the time, that was not possible. And it was just in 1993, 94, there was no such thing as the jujitsu academy down the street. Right. You either did like Golden Gloves boxing or maybe there was a karate or taekwondo school somewhere within driving distance. But there was no such thing as jujitsu or Muay Thai or even kickboxing. Mm -hmm. So the thought and the UFC at that time was this discipline against that discipline. It wasn't quote unquote mixed martial arts in the way that we understand it today. So it was in the back of my mind the whole time, but it was just that. It was just in the back of my mind as one of those unfulfilled, I wish I could do that kind of things. And then around the time that I graduated from college and I was about 23 going on 24, I started asking the big questions about life, the universe and everything, so to speak, and started studying physics because that's always interested me and started studying microbiology. Cell biology has always really interested me, especially mitochondria. Started reading philosophy more seriously, both Greek uh, philosophy, Roman philosophy, Western philosophy, but also Eastern philosophy. Started studying Taoism very seriously, memorized the Tao Te Ching, started studying Buddhism, started studying Confucianism and so forth and so on and all the kind of offshoots of those different philosophies. Actually, through my study of science and philosophy, I came to believe in God, especially uh, physics in particular, because I looked at mitochondria in relation to cell biology and I looked at Stephen Hawking's brief history of time and him explaining time and space and asking myself the question, have you not believed in a God because you were willfully ignorant or because you genuinely don't believe in God? And after reading Hawking and reading uh, Darwin's black box, for example, a little bit later by a biochemist, 
I came to the conclusion for myself that the universe was too elegant to be an accident, that whether it be the human eyeball, whether it be the way that a flag waves in the wind and why the atoms don't fly apart, for example, uh, all of these different things really drove me to, I think I believe there's a creator, whether that's a higher power or a prime mover or something. It was just a kind of abstract general, I think I believe in something bigger than myself. And then from that, because I was an addict and an alcoholic and because I was in a lot of really violent, toxic relationships, I had a worn out from my arrest, all these things. I, I couldn't determine whether I was having a psychotic break or whether this was truly happening to me. It was confusing. So I pursued studying various religions to figure out which God I believed in. So I read the Quran, I read the Torah and Midrash, Jewish commentary. Uh, I read the Bhagavad Gita, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. I read everything I get my hands on. I study books on witchcraft, folk religions, everything. And finally, lastly, I bought a Bible because I'd grown up around Christians and I had no desire to be a Christian or read their Bible. I felt that they were, at the time, I thought they were very juvenile, ignorant people in denial about reality. And so why would I want to follow their religion? Finally did that and long, long story shorter, I came to the conclusion that all of the religious books I read taught the same basic theology, which was there is a God or a goddess or gods. They created us to be their servants. They put us here on earth to do that. We serve at their whim, their will, and this is a test. Life is a test. And depending on how you do on the test, in your obedience to the God, you either go up or you go down. You either go to Valhalla or you go to hell. And that was the base, basically, for, like I said, for every religion I studied. And then started reading the Bible, didn't realize it was a, a library of books at the time. I thought you were supposed to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and then read to the end. And I think I made it to probably Genesis chapter, the first genealogy, I think is why I made it, you know. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, this is like a telephone book. Like, I can't do this. And you're asking a drug addict to have patience and read, right? And I, so I flipped to the end of Genesis and realized, oh, there's no way I'm going to go read this many chapters in this thing. I mean, we got talking snakes. We got this dude wrestling with God. We got a flood. I mean, this is obviously nonsense. This is science fiction fantasy stuff. So I just jumped around and, and tried to find a foothold in the Bible and read some Psalms. Nope. Read some of the Minor Prophets. Made no sense. Read Matthew. Jesus seems super judgy. He's angry a lot, saying a lot of, you know, if you do this, then this kind of stuff and condemning people all the time. Tried Acts. Didn't work. Even I, I was like, oh, Philemon. It's one page. This is fantastic. Read Philemon. Made no sense. And then I got to 1 John, and 1 John 4 specifically, uh, that not that we loved him, but he first loved us and, and essentially sacrificed himself, was a blood offering for us. That was the first thing I'd ever read in any religious book that was different, because instead of what I was supposed to do for God, instead of being told, well, you were put on earth to do all these things for God, and based on your behavior, based on your execution of these laws, commands, rules, whatever it might be, Again, you either go up or you go down when you die. This was, he came down to us and he did something for us and he actually expects nothing from us in return. And that was the thing then that drove me to start going to churches and ask, okay, this is the thing that I've been looking for. That is, I want to hear God loves me. Not that God put me here to test me. Not that there is a God. Now figure it out. Not watchmaker God or, you know, hamp gerbil wheel watches me and taps on the aquarium every once in a while God, but God who came specifically, personally to me to establish a relationship with me and to give me everything I need for this body and life versus expecting me to give him something to justify my body and life. So I pursued that. And this is about around this time of year, actually, when this happened in 1994, 95. So I went to the cathedral in St. Paul, Minnesota for high mass on Good Friday, which was, <clears throat> excuse me, an experience. There was so much incense 
one, you couldn't even see the acolyte's face, upper torso, because there's so much incense. It was just wow. two legs and then smoke. <laughs> and so immediately my, my, my allergies go off. My eyes puff up. I'm draining snot. I, I can't breathe. My, body, you know, my brain's saying, we need to get out of here and have a cigarette. We need to go to the car and get high. We shouldn't even be here right now. The whole thing was in Latin, so everybody seemed to know what was going on except for me. It was in a cathedral, so it was this massive stone structure that just made you feel like the smallest person in the universe, which is actually architecturally the intent of that. And the priest wore gold brocade vestments, and everything about it said to me, I don't belong here. So I left and then didn't go back to church for a while. Then some friends from college invited me to go to their Lutheran church in the suburbs, went to that, which is the polar opposite. We met in essentially what felt like a gym and tile floor, traditional Midwestern Lutheran setting, chairs, projection screens, uh, praise band up in the corner, made up primarily of baby boomers with thinning hair and flip-flops and Hawaiian shirts. And I said, this is definitely not for me either. And so I started becoming very frustrated then that I was searching for this, this word that I had read in 1 John about God loving me and giving his son as a blood sacrifice for me, but I wasn't hearing it. I was simply hearing, do more better. Believe in God, come to church regularly, behave yourself, and you'll go to heaven when you die. And I'm saying, I've already read that in the Quran. I've already read that in Torah. I've already read that in Eastern philosophy and Western mysticism. I've already read that message. So where's the message of the Bible? Where's the message of John? I wasn't hearing it. It was very frustrating. I went to a friend's uh, father who was an, a Lutheran pastor, and he suggested I actually leave the country and get out of my social circles, get out of my comfort zone, which was addiction and abuse, and to try and get clarity. So I actually ended up going to a mission in Mexico, in Baja, and I lived there for about a year in non-denominational, all born again, Pentecostal, charismatic Christians. So growing up in the upper Midwest of Minnesota, where Sunday's the quietest day of the year of the week, to going to Pentecostal worship, charismatic worship, with the gifts of the spirit and people putting their hands up in the air and sharing their testimonies, this Midwestern boy was like, I am in the wrong place, in the wrong <laughs> culture, at the wrong time. I got to get out of here. The problem was, didn't speak Spanish when I got there. So I couldn't even ask to get out of there. Oh my gosh. Right. But after a year then, I determined that I was never going to leave Mexico and I was going to live there the rest of my life. I worked at an orphanage. I volunteered at an orphanage. And I taught music actually. And then I was part of the music ministry at the church in three different bands. I was part of the outreach team. And I served with them and we cared for 30,000 workers in the valley. I volunteered at the clinic because the family that adopted me into their family, the father was a doctor. And at that time in 1996, we were the only free clinic in the entire country of Mexico. So we, we opened at sunup and we closed at well after sundown because people came from as far south as Guatemala. They came from the United States. They came from everywhere because we were a free clinic and we would treat everybody. So that for me was the thing that really snapped me out of my, oh, poor me, drug addiction, abuse cycle of victimization or victimhood thinking. Because I saw, and I actually ended up working at a drug rehab center, which was basically just tarp and a 500 gallon water tank and a pig. And then some, we made a house out of windows. Uh, yeah. And so uh, one of my jobs on weekends was we had to go get people who had sold their clothes for a bottle of Aquanet so they could get drunk and you'd find them naked in a gutter and you'd get them and bring them back going into villages in the mountains on outreach and discovering that every woman and every girl in the village had been systematically raped because that was the culture mm -hmm. and that was all they had ever known. So for them, it was totally normal. Seeing true oppression, seeing real poverty really snapped me out of my, like I said, woe is me, poor me kind of attitude. So when I came back to the States, then uh, I wanted to go back and I, that was blocked. Ended up out in Oregon, went back to college again, got a second master, or a bachelor's degree uh, to go to seminary. Didn't want to go to seminary, but I didn't have anything better to do. And the church that I joined out there actually ended up sponsoring me to, to go to seminary. So I was like, I got nothing better to do. So I went and uh, that's when I met my wife and we got married and then went to seminary. 
and then got to seminary and decided it wasn't for me. I was going to drop out. Uh, professor talked to me into staying, getting my academic master's degree. Got it. Was going to leave. Got talked into doing my PhD in church history and Reformation studies. So I wrote my dissertation on Martin Luther and the Reformation and then was going to go teach. And then... I, I'm always the square peg that gets screwed into the round hole, so to speak. I am one of the misfit toys. So after 10 years of running away from ministry, I actually ended up becoming a pastor. And that's where I've been the past 10 years now is where I currently serve as a pastor. And then, so that's that side of the, the street. The other side of the street is three years ago then, it took me 20 years, but three years ago I walked into a jiu-jitsu academy, mixed martial arts academy for the first time. That first class was me, a brown belt, a purple belt, and a 50-year-old white belt. And as I'm sure anybody who's listening who has tried, I did everything that the videos I watched on YouTube told me not to do before <laughs> starting jujitsu. So I did CrossFit and HIIT workouts to get in shape. I changed my diet, went keto. I changed my sleep patterns. I did everything to get in shape for jujitsu and then went in for my first class and discovered I was not in shape for jujitsu, <laughs> which was stunning to me because I could run a 5K with no problem, do a 45 hour long hit workout without stopping. Like I was in shape. I was in good shape, but I wasn't in jujitsu shape. I tell the intro students now that I assist and teach that class, that first class, he, my instructor, he stopped everything that they were doing. And for me, and it was just four of us. So we did rear naked chokes and arm bars. So we, we did the technique and then we did the technique drill. And I did, again, I did what you're not supposed to. I spazzed out and I'm grunting and making noises and straining and sweating and feeling pretty good about myself, actually, especially when I rolled with the 50 year old, I was escaping sometimes from his grips and getting, you know, getting out. And then my instructor says, okay, let's take a break and then we'll roll. And I said, wait, what, what do you mean roll? That's the class, right? He's like, oh no, we haven't even started yet. And I'm quivering. I can't feel my forearms. My hands have no feeling in them because they're oxygen starved. My brain is completely overloaded. And now I have to do... 30 minutes of what, what do we, what do you call that? Rolling? What's rolling? Mm -hmm. And then for, so the brown belt, the purple belt, and then the white belt rolled me <laughs> for 30 minutes and rolling. And I walked out feeling like I'd just been hit by a truck. Uh, my, especially my chest. I felt like I had actually been in a car accident and the steering wheel had been driven into my chest. I got home. I laid down on my bed. I put a heating pad on and I said to my wife, I'm probably not going to be able to move for the rest of the day. <laughs> and she goes, so it was that bad. Actually, I drove home with my wrist because I couldn't actually wrap my fingers around the steering wheel either. And I got home and thought to myself, if I can do this twice a week, I'm that's all I want. That's my goal is to be able to do this twice a week. That's my long-term goal. After my first class, my long-term goal was I just want to make it to two classes a week. And yeah, that was the thing is it took me 20 years to get there. But after that first class, I knew this is this is my jam. This is my thing. And no matter where, much like when I discovered Martin Luther on the theological side, and when I read him for the first time, I said, wherever you want me to go, I'll follow you. After that first jujitsu class, I said the same thing to jujitsu. Wherever <laughs> jujitsu wants me to go with it, I'll go with jujitsu. Because it, unless you've done it, you, you can never understand what it does to you, especially for those of us who don't think of it as a hobby, so to speak, as much as it's an obsession. It, it's the cliche, right? It's not a hobby. It's an, it's a lifestyle mm -hmm. for me. It is, it, it immediately became a lifestyle because well, one, I was 45 when I started and my 45 year old body does not react the same way my 25 or 35 year old body reacts. And so I have to be very smart about what I, how I treat myself and, and how I roll and everything that goes with it and how I train. But from that initial class, like I said, almost three years ago now, I then ended up starting Muay Thai and kickboxing and wrestling mixed in. 
peppering that in. Started, I went from one class to two. Now I train five days a week, 12 or more hours a week. Teach, assist and teach Muay Thai and intro to jujitsu class. My four kids are involved with jujitsu now. My 16-year-old son, my 12-year-old daughter, my eight-year-old son and my six-year-old son. My baby's one and change. And uh, <laughs> we actually bought mats and we have them set up at home in one room and we call it the rolling room, formerly the study. And uh, we just put her on there to sleep, to take naps because we assume that she'll just absorb the jujitsu vibes off the mats themselves. <laughs> So she'll just, by the time she's five, she'll be a two-time no-gi world champion probably. Right, <laughs> That's what we hope for. Okay, I have to back you up just a minute. So yes, you ma'am. just described like the most awful, torturous, miserable experience ever referred to as your first jujitsu experience. And then you went from, right. oh my gosh, I love it. It's like, it's changed my life and I want to do it every right. day. So go back and, and sure. I, I'm totally with you, but yeah. try to explain. And then I'm going to ask you about your kids and their experience too, but How was that first day of laying on your back with the heating pad on your body so amazing that you're like, I'm going to go back and do this for for the rest of my life? Right. So this overlaps actually with with your two initial questions. Because of the way that I grew up and the dynamic of our family, um, especially in the context of addiction and abuse, I grew up afraid. From the earliest that I can remember, and good, bad, or indifferent, I'm cursed with a mind that that's like a prairie fence. It catches everything. It doesn't let anything go. So I remember things from when I was two or three years old still. As early as I can remember, I've known fear, whether on an emotional level or what, what you know, in the express, being able to express it. But I've always been afraid. I was afraid of my dad. I was afraid of my uncles who physically abused me. I was afraid of my grandma's husband, who was an abusive alcoholic, who abused me. And so I was always afraid. And then, we, like I said, we moved around so much. I was always the new kid. So I was afraid of my peers. I was afraid of being bullied. I was always a skinny kid. I'm still, as my friend described me the other day, you're tall and gangly. That's just who you are. (laughs) And at 47, I can accept that grudgingly, but I'm still on the hunt for TRT. I I figure at some point I'll qualify (laughs) and then I can bulk up. But uh, I've always been afraid. And I've been afraid of my girlfriends leaving me. I've been afraid of being beat up. I've been afraid of not being able to protect my wife. I've been afraid of not being able to take care of my children not provide for them, not defend them against physical, spiritual, or mental attacks, emotional attacks. I've been afraid of everything. Paranoid, almost. You could describe it as almost paranoid, but just afraid. And then the added layer is I've always believed, though, that I am a very strong person and that I have, for lack of a better term, like I said about being obsessed with conflict and violence and and military history growing up in particular. And I think part of that, too, was I really wanted to understand my dad who never talked about the war and still won't. And the only time he ever actually talked about anything regarding Vietnam was when he was so drunk that all of his mental filters were were gone, were kind of wiped away. But I always felt that I was not a coward, or at least I wanted to believe I wasn't a coward. I wanted to believe that I was a strong person in the sense of being a fighter, being a warrior, but I was always afraid. So I was always afraid to prove myself. So most of the time I would just lie so I'd either lie about who I was and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a brown belt in Taekwondo. When I got to college, I lied about it and be like, I'm a brown belt in Taekwondo. So people would leave me alone and not pick on me at parties and stuff like that. Or when I was in high school, like I wrestled in elementary school because my dad was a wrestling coach, high school wrestling coach. So I, when I got to high school, I just said, yeah, I, I wrestled. You know, I've been a wrestler for a long time. So if I couldn't basically kind of deflect and distract people and provide cover for that, I would just, I was the class clown then, and I found that getting in trouble and being the, the cl- not only the class clown, but the rebel in class also then got me street cred with people that could 
protect me from the bullies. And so I was in sports, but I was also hanging out with the burnouts, the juvenile delinquents. And I was involved in Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy type of stuff. But at the same time, I was over here uh, involved in band and I was in, trying to involve myself in everything. So I had cover from everybody so that I couldn't be picked on by any one group, even into college. So I was always afraid. That's also then what motivated me to be such a hard drinker and to abuse drugs and alcohol, especially painkillers like Percocet, Vicodin and other things, opiates in particular. I'm, uh, that's my addiction is opiates, opioids. But always that dichotomy of I, I want to believe that I'm a brave person, that I'm a courageous person. I want to help people. I want to be that soldier. I want to be that warrior. I want to be that knight that I read about, that I idolize, that I want to live up to that ideal. But I'm afraid. It took me 20 years, not just to get sober and get my life straightened out, so I could actually be available to do jujitsu or walk into a martial arts academy, but I had to overcome that fear. And it took me 20 years to open that door. It took me over a year to get myself worked up so that I could walk through that door. So when I walked through for that first class, I was terrified of what was gonna happen to me, yet excited simultaneously because here it was. I'm gonna find out in the next hour whether I'm truly a coward, and I do have, I, and this whole time I've had good cause to be afraid, or what I've always believed about myself will be true. But either way, in an hour, I'm gonna find out who I really am at my core. And so it sucked, as I said, because you're overloaded with information, people are crawling around on top of you, choking you, arm lock, you know, uh, joint locking you, doing all of these things to you freely, it seems like. And the 50-year-old guy was smaller than me by six inches, weighed 30 pounds less than I do, I'm positive. And yet he had his way with me for the most part. Yet when I walked out, every muscle in my body starting to swell and become inflamed from trauma. At the same time, I survived. And, and I wanted to go back because that's what came out was, you're not going to make me quit. The only thing that's going to, in fact, my instructor just asked me this past week, uh, we were talking after class. He said, how long do you think you can keep going at the, at the pace you're going? And I looked at him, I said, until I break. So whether that's 50, whether that's 65, whether that's 80, I will do this until I'm broken because that's the only way you're going to get me to quit because now I know who I am. And I know what I can do. And every time I walk on the mat, the mental strength, the physical strength, the emotional strength, the humility, the gratitude, the discipline, the character that, that jujitsu instills in you, those kind of invisible, intangible things, invisible jujitsu like Hicks and Gracie talks about. Every single time I walk on the mat, I get more of that. And I tell people it's the most addictive drug I've ever taken in my life because I would actually sell my drugs to do jujitsu. And that's why, for me, that was also part of my sobriety, starting jiu-jitsu and pursuing combat martial arts to where I'm at now. And so, yeah, it was horrifying. It was terrifying because of the you're, you're showing you're not special and you're not strong. You're not as strong as you think you are, physically, mentally, or emotionally. You're not as smart as you think you are. And if you stay with this thing called jiu-jitsu, there's going to be more beatings. There's going to be more humbling. There's going to be more challenges. You're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to feel like you're riding a tidal wave on a little bitty surfboard. And most of the time, you're just going to be clinging to the surfboard. You're not even going to be surfing. <laughs> and yet, if you stick with it, eventually, you're going to surf that big wave, mm -hmm. like all these other people are surfing this big wave. And then at some point in surfing that big wave, you're actually going to recognize that wave is information. It's data. It's techniques. It's it's everything that jujitsu has to offer to you. And if you stick with it and you eventually get to stand up on that surfboard called jujitsu, you'll eventually start to look around at that wave. And all of a sudden now you start to be able to like pull things out of that wave as you're surfing it. And you'll get in that tube and you'll surf that tube and you'll grab information out of that tube, out of that wave. And that's what jujitsu will do for you. 
but you got to stay on the board and you got to get back up every time you get smashed into the reef and every time you you just about near get drowned you got to get back up to the surface you got to paddle back out and you got to get back up and ride that wave because that's that's jujitsu is what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it it's very merit-based and so in a sense it's the opposite of my christian faith Christian faith is based on the merit of Jesus. It's based on what he did for me, what he does do for me. That's the good news. That's the gospel, as we call it, that he freely forgives all of my selfishness. That's what sin is, selfishness, self-centeredness. He freely forgives that in his death and resurrection. He gives me true freedom to live my life now then, because I don't have to worry if, if God's going to judge me based on my vocational choices, my relationship choices, whether I'm selfish or selfless, whether I'm loving or hateful, whether I'm forgiving or unforgiving. Jesus's death on the cross on Good Friday for me, is the center point of not only all of history, but of my entire, it's the identity that, that underlies my entire life. It's my identity. So set free then from having to worry about God's judgment or in, set free from my neighbor's judgment, whether or not I'm good enough or whether I measure, am I good enough as a husband? Do I measure up as a father? Am I worth anything as a pastor? All of that's wiped away by the blood of Jesus. And that sets me then free to go learn how to love my neighbor in the sense of, do I want my neighbor to have evil done to them? Whether it's my wife, my children, my congregation, or my neighbor. Can I take responsibility for my neighbor's well-being, physical, mental, and emotional, even if that neighbor wants to do me harm and wants to do evil to me? Can I take responsibility for that one who wants to hurt me? And that's what jujitsu in particular and mixed martial arts has given to me, is this overlying confidence confident in my skills and abilities that I've learned, but at the same time, humble, that I'm not, I'm not more or less important than anybody else. I'm not special. My neck is as, as um, fragile to being strangled as anybody else's is. Mm -hmm. So therefore I have confidence in what I know and what I don't know, but I also am humble and recognize in any given situation, things can be torn from you and taken that are out of your control and you can't control that. So the, the, the dichotomy of combat martial arts is it teaches you how to fight so that you never have to fight. And that then also for my children growing up in the Christian faith and growing up on the mats, they live in these, what we call the two kingdoms in the Lutheran tradition. The, you have the earthly kingdom in the sense of loving and taking care of your neighbor, being selfless, putting your neighbor first. But then in the right-handed kingdom, we call that the kingdom of heaven, salvation, stuff, Jesus stuff. They also are baptized children of God. They hear the good news that Jesus died for their sin, for their selfishness, and God doesn't count that against them anymore. So therefore, what do you do in that forgiveness? Well, you're free. You're free to serve your neighbor in love. You're free to take care of your neighbor, put your neighbor first, and be the best child you can be to your parents, the best classmate you can be, the best training partner. And know that even if you're not the best, even if you fail miserably that day, God's not judging you. So why are you judging yourself? And if you don't judge yourself and you're humble and accept, hey, you know what? I blew it there, or that wasn't my best, or I'm sorry, I, I let you down. You can own it and say, hey, yeah, that was, my, that was on me. I can own that. And then that sets your, your training partner or your fellow student or your siblings free to take responsibility for loving you and taking care of you. But for us, then, it's that's both the, the dichotomy and the overlap of faith and jujitsu. Tell me a little bit more about your daughter's experience. I know you've said in the past how right. much the two of you are a lot alike, but um, yeah. bringing girls into what <clears throat> still to most people appears to be a male-dominated sport, mm -hmm. but yet right. the value of of jujitsu being a great self-defense uh, right. primer. I mean, that's why my husband picked 
jujitsu for our daughters too, but what's it been like to bring your daughter in and what is it, what is it teaching her about her identity? So my 12 year old Alma named after my Mexican mom, the the family that took me in at the mission, the, the doctor and his family, my spiritual family, uh, Alma, we, we started all of our kids in Taekwondo when they were four and my daughter was this, she's the second child. So being like me, being very artistic, being very left brain, the form and learning form was very boring for her. And the classes were very boring because it was very non-contact oriented. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so she she tired of that very, very quickly. And the, the structure of the class was not for her. So once I started jujitsu, she immediately wanted to start jujitsu because we had been watching EBI and Polaris and Metamoris and the UFC. And, and so she had grown up watching fights and watching jujitsu and grappling. So she knew what it was. And she said the first time, I think the first time we watched a women's match in EBI, she went, said, I want to do that. That's what I'm going to do. So I was like, Okay, that's great. And she had seen Ronda Rousey fight at the time too. And obviously with Ronda's judo, Cats and Gano's wrestling, she had seen that too. So she knew grappling and she wanted that because to her that was exciting. So I took her to her first class. And before our two academies consolidated in one academy, the one that I was going to, which was 35 minutes from our house, she was the smallest then child in that entire class. Then all these boys, 10, 11, 12 years old boys who are bigger than my daughter, heavier than my daughter and boys, 10, 12 year old boys where they're just plain dumb. They're like puppies. They can't (laughs) stop touching each other. Right. So, so then for my daughter, then in a similar situation, she went to class and just got the living tar beat out of her every single class. And so every day uh, on the way home, we would pep talk each other. (laughs) That's what we would do as encourage. And I would just tell her, Hey, how'd class go? And she'd lay it out for me and she'd bite her lip and not try not to cry. And I'd say, you know what? Same thing happened to me in class. Here's what happened to me. And we would, we would, we just build each other up so that by the time we got home and said, people would say, well, how was class? It was good. It was good. It was hard, but it was good. Right. But her attitude was, you're not going to make me quit. You're going to have to break me. And especially for a 10 year old girl, I was, well, just a 10 year old in general, I shouldn't say a 10 year old, just a 10 year old in general to have that out, that mindset of like, you're not going to make me quit. I'm going to keep doing this. Of all the people that I've ever known, my daughter's and, and my, my oldest, because of some stuff that happened when he was born, they're probably the two people in the world that I respect the most because of who they are as people. And also, I'm just amazed that they came from me and my wife, because my wife also was abused growing up, sexually abused, actually. And so coming from our backgrounds to, to witness the kind of person that our, our each child is, we both sometimes still go, how the hell did this happen? <laughs> how, how did this, like, this is a gift. Like how, this shouldn't be happening because we're two very screwed up people. So how come our kids are so well adjusted? In fact, sometimes our oldest will scold us and say, knock it off. You did a great job. You're doing a great job. Stop apologizing. Stop asking if you can do anything better. And we're like, really? You, you know, really? So then when my daughter came to the, to the other academy, now all of a sudden she was one of the older people in class because most of the students in the academy their parents wouldn't drive the other, this is so sad, but they didn't want to drive an extra 20 minutes to the other class. So of the students that were in that original class that she went to, two or three made the trip over to the other academy. So now all of a sudden, instead of being the smallest and the littlest, she's now one of the oldest and one of the taller ones. And in between that, all, and then after we made the, the shift, a month later, she was in her first tournament. And again, my, my respect for her is incredible because she got beat twice. And she smiled and hugged her opponent and trotted off the mat, bouncy, 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 as my daughter does. Here's my daughter in a nutshell. What do you want to be for Halloween? I want to be Lady Sif from Thor. Or (laughs) I want to be a shield maiden from the show Vikings. But I want it to be pink and sparkly. That's That's perfect. That's my daughter in a nutshell. I want a sword, but it's got to have sparkles. (laughs) So (laughs) she's beautiful, but she will kill you. Um, 
with a smile. <laughs> so after the tournament and with the shift to the other academy, just her toughness, her mental toughness, and her ability to just get back up off the mat and say, you know what, I learned a lot, and I'm excited for the next tournament. And then in her next tournament in the spring, she won her first match against a boy that was bigger than her, which was a huge deal for her. And then she lost her second match because she adrenaline dumped everything in the first match. So now this spring, coming up in another month, actually, she's ready. She's already mentally preparing and physically preparing for this tournament now. So for her, simply put, when my daughter says no, whether she's 12 22 or 52, I want her no to be no. And unfortunately, the world in which we live in is violent and it's not fair, especially for women. And I know we live in this bubble of safety in the United States where people, we lie to ourselves and say, well, the things that happen to women in other countries can't happen here, don't happen where I live. That's a lie. My wife growing up in the suburbs being sexually abused by her father and uncle proves that. We may be better at covering it up and maybe the media doesn't cover it as it should, but violence towards women, as I said, to you when we previously talked, I stopped counting at basically 27, 28. I quit counting how many girls and women I knew who were either date raped, molested, or just raped. Mm -hmm. I can't count, especially once I lived in Mexico. So it's a reality. It's, it's there whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And it's not a matter of if my daughter is going to be in a situation where someone wants to sexually abuse her. It's just a matter of when. And yeah, when she's with me, I can protect her. So, to, you know, to a limited degree, but eventually she's going to be on her own, whether at school, whether with other adults at church, wherever it is, she's going to be alone or she's going to be in a situation where she has to say no. And what, it, and unfortunately, because we live in a world that's not fair, if the threat or force of violence is not behind that, no, especially as a woman, men will say, oh, okay, so you mean yes. Or I don't really care if you say no, I'm going to do this anyways. And so I want my daughters in particular to be able to say no and then be able to say, oh, okay, you want, you want this to escalate? Fine. I'm going to take responsibility for you because you're being uh, irresponsible, immoral, and, and evil, possibly. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take responsibility for you right now and stop you from doing something to me and hurting yourself at the same time. <clears throat> and if I have to choke you unconscious and hold you until the cops come, then that's what I'm going to do. But like I said, it's not just the physical technique that matters to me. It's also the mental and emotional strength and the discipline that comes from jujitsu that my daughter, as her teachers have said at school, as school administrators have said, as people of church have commented, what did you change about the way that you guys raise your kids, because your kids are the most caring and compassionate, the most respectful and humble. They're always taking care of other people. They're always asking if they can help. And I, it's jujitsu. That's the only thing that's changed. We, they're in jujitsu. All of them eventually left Taekwondo and all of them eventually fell in love with jujitsu. My, my oldest after his first class, my daughter after her first class, my other two boys after their second or third class, because they're a little younger. So they're still a little squirrely, but all of them you know, today, like I said, we have mats in our house that we roll in all the time. And the way that we discipline them is to simply say, oh, you don't want to clean your room? No class tonight. And that's all it takes. That's funny. So I discovered you, I refer to it as a think tank. And I don't know if that's the way you guys describe yourself, guys and gals, but I described, discovered you through an organization called 1517. Describe a little bit about what that is and its purpose. And sure. then you have a unique perspective that I really appreciate because of your love for jujitsu and Jesus that yep. collides those worlds together. You have a book coming out and I wanted to give you a I chance do, to yeah. describe that book and this, this organization that's really helping me. And I really wanted to help uh, girls in my 
uh, organization at the Great Flip to understand the good mm -hmm. news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I got involved with 1517, the Legacy Project is, I think, technically the whole thing. But I think it's like 1517.org or something, or 1517 Legacy. I have a bookmark, so I never pay attention. But um, I started writing for them regularly a couple of years ago, three years ago or so. And then eventually they wanted to pay me to be a, a regular contributor to the website as far as my writing. And then through that, I then was pitched. Uh, they wanted me to do a, a podcast. And so we ended up, I and my partner, um, Christopher Gillespie, he's my producer. We started doing this podcast called the Banned Books Podcast. And the Banned Books Podcast, simply put, is we read books by theologians across all of church history who are either declared heretical by the church, uh, declared too dangerous to read, or are simply vilified. And to read them and have a conversation and ask, were they truly heretical? Were they truly false teachers? Uh, are they too dangerous to read? And why are they too dangerous to read? Or why were they vilified? And, and why why are they vilified? And have that conversation and to think critically about theological topics, but also philosophical topics and, and bring it into the current culture in which we live in society. So we talk about pop culture a lot and social issues and, and so forth. Politics and tangentially, I try to stay away from politics as much as possible because I hate politics. Through the Banned Books podcast, then I started speaking at conferences and retreats. So we have the Here We Still Stand conference in October in San Diego that we now do. That was a, originally that was a one shot. We were just hmm. going to do it. And then everyone who attended insisted that we do it again. So we did it last year, the second one. And then this year we sold out within, I think, like a month and a half of opening registration for the third one. That is to say, for myself, the reason I got involved is because what we're doing, all of us, is to present Reformation theology, in particular Reformation Lutheran theology, because that's most of us, that's our wheelhouse as Lutherans, and to present the Reformation Lutheran confession of the Christian faith in such a way to say, hey, this isn't quote-unquote Lutheran theology, this is Christian theology, it just happened to come through this guy named Luther, who was then excommunicated in 1521 by his pope, and then the term Lutheran was used as a pejorative, in the same way Christian was used by the Romans and Greeks as a pejorative, as an insult, Lutheran was considered a curse word at the time, it, essentially Lutheran means not Christian, not Catholic. And it wasn't until 1531 that they finally just said, you know what, fine, we accept it, we're Lutherans. Because they were calling themselves evangelicals or Catholics, but then other people took over the term evangelical who went beyond what the Germans were teaching, the Reformation, Martin Luther was German and his colleagues. And yet on the other hand too, the Catholics, the Roman Catholics were called Catholics. And so they're kind of stuck between, well, we can't say we're Catholic because people confuse us for being Roman Catholic papists, and we can't call ourselves evangelicals because now these people are taking over the evangelical thing, and well, we're not with them because they reject original sin, they don't believe that, um, they believe we have free will in regards to our salvation, we can actually save ourselves in a certain way, and they reject baptism and the Lord's Supper and the forgiveness of sins as being actually effective. Like they don't actually do what Jesus says they do. They are just kind of like, here, you're baptized, now do something with this. Or Jesus died for your sin, now go do something to show him that you're grateful and thankful so that when you die, you get rewarded with heaven. So for us then, like I said, I, I didn't grow up in the church and I wasn't Lutheran. I'm Lutheran by conviction. I'm Lutheran because I read Luther. So I came into the world as a Christian in the non-denominational West Coast Christian field. I was vineyard and Foursquare and all that. So I know what it's like to walk through the valley of the shadow of works righteousness and that treadmill of Christianity of do more better. Again, believe in God, go to church on Sunday and behave yourself and you'll go to heaven when you die. I, I've been on that treadmill and I know how exhausting it is. I know how terrible it is in the literal sense of that word that you, you don't know on a daily basis what your relationship to God is. You don't know what his attitude towards you is because where's Jesus, right? How is God present tense for you right now? I don't need Jesus 2,000 years ago. I need him now. You know, I don't need Jesus to die for my sins 2,000 years ago. I wasn't there. I don't care. I need him to, to give me the forgiveness today. I need a preacher. 
that preach the gospel to me today. I need to know that my identity is grounded in my baptismal grace, not my works. I need to know that the that when I go to communion, that's the body and blood of Jesus under the bread and wine. However that happens, it's a mystery. We take it on faith. But that when I hear given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, it gives me exactly what it says. And that's really the core then of the Reformation Lutheran teaching on what we call justification, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the solas as they're called, the, the Reformation solas, the alones. But at the core is simply this. Jesus died for your sin. He sends you a preacher to declare that to you in the present tense, to baptize you, to to commune with you, to feed you on his body and blood, to give you faith, to give you love, to give you everything that you need for this body and life, to serve you, actually, not to serve him, so that you can go serve your neighbor, actually. God doesn't need you to love him. He needs you to love your neighbor. And we always get that confused because we want to make Christianity and just every religion into something we do for God, as I said at the beginning. We want to make it this this big sacrifice that we offer up to the gods to go, hey, is this good enough? And hopefully they say yes, but we won't know until we die. So we're essentially living in purgatory on earth then, because we believe God loves us, but we're not sure, and we won't know for sure until the last judgment, which, to be blunt, sucks. And there's no peace in that. There's no comfort in that. There's just the treadmill. And depending on the day, your treadmill either gets turned up to 10 or it gets turned down to 2. You're either walking really fast or you're sprinting, but you're stuck on this treadmill. And if you stop the treadmill and get off, well, God's going to send you to hell. What kind of a life is that? What kind of faith is that? Why why go to church then? Well, you have to. It's an obligation. Well, why believe in God then? Well, you have to. It's an obligation. Why do anything? You have to. It's an obligation. You do want to go to heaven when you die, don't you? You don't want to go to hell. I mean, that's terrible. Well, yeah, 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 okay. So we don't truly love in freedom then, and we don't forgive one another in freedom. We do it because we're obligated, because we're afraid of hell. And it's like the old saying, a lot of Christians back their way into heaven because they're afraid of the fire of hell. And that's that's what the Reformation destroyed through the recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for us at 1517, we don't care what denomination you are. We don't care what religion you are. We don't care if you have no religion. What we want to do is get the gospel of Jesus Christ to as many people in as many forums as we can, whether it's writing, podcasting, conferences, so that everybody else who is out there who thinks to themselves, well, everybody else at church seems to be quite happy with the way pastor teaches and preaches, and everybody else in my congregation and my circle of Christian friends doesn't seem to have a problem with this. Why do I? Well, it just must be me. Well, like I said, I've always been the misfit toy. I've always been the odd man out. So for me, I I wasn't satisfied with that. I was always the one who was like, no, nah, there's got to be something else. There's got to be more. There's got I can't be the only one here. At one point when we were first married and I was at seminary, my wife and I attended over 50 churches just to find the gospel, just to find a pastor who would pastor us, just to find a congregation that would actually accept my confession of sin. I'm a drug addict and alcoholic. My wife's been sexually molested. She's a victim of religious abuse even, uh, which is actually worse than physical and sexual abuse in some ways. Because it's one thing to be abused by a, uh, an earthly parent or, or relation. It's another thing to be abused in the name of God. Mm-hmm. That's horrific. Because that, I mean, that in and of itself will destroy a person for good. Like my dad, mm-hmm. because of Vietnam. When we finally found a pastor who pastored us, when we finally heard the gospel preached to us unconditionally, with no buts or breaks or measures or limits or conditions, then that was, you know, when I went to seminary and I made up my mind finally to become a pastor, I was like, that's what I'm going to do you know, come hell or high water. And to me, I don't really have a choice about preaching that message or or speaking because I need to hear it. And I know my wife and kids need to hear it. And therefore, and not ironically, my congregation is the island of misfit toys. Everybody in my church, with the exception of, I think, eight people now, uh, and we have about 65 on a Sunday, regularly attendance. We're a small congregation, but 65 in attendance, 100 and 125 total members. Of those 65, only eight are from this area. Everybody else that attends worship that belongs to this church quit church at some point and basically gave up and said, it must be me. 
And then they found us through social media or through my writings or the podcast or through word of mouth mm-hmm. and came in and said, he can't possibly believe he's what he's saying. And then they came back. Some left for six months and came back. But when they came back and they heard the exact same thing being preached, they said, holy crap, he does actually believe this stuff. <laughs> and then it was, how can you possibly believe what you're saying is true? Because I grew up in the church and I've never heard this before. And so then that's when you teach and that's when you pastor them, when you walk with them and you say, hey, here it is. Don't take my word for it. Don't take Dr. Luther's word for it or anybody else. Is this what the Bible says? Is this what God's word says? Or am I just making stuff up to make a point? This isn't my hobby horse. This isn't my political or philosophical ideology. This is my ethic that I'm selling to you. This, I believe, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which will set you free from the burden of having to get on that treadmill every day and live your best life for God right now or else. Versus, no, you're totally free. Well, free to do what? You're free to go start jujitsu. You're free to change your diet and the way you sleep. You're free to change your relationship and the way that you uh, approach relationships. You're free to, about the way that you think about your church and your pastor and your faith and God in general. Because I think we talked about this before that we call it the, the happy or joyous exchange, which is Jesus, when he dies and is raised from the dead on the third day, he does that to give you everything, faith, mm-hmm. love, everything that he has in relation to his father, he gives to us. And then he takes everything that we have, our sin and our selfishness and rebellion upon himself on the cross. That's why John the baptizer says, that's the lamb of God who dies for the sin of the world. He is our sacrificial lamb. And as St. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthian church, God made him to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So in baptism, we are made righteous in the sense of God says, yeah, you're sinful. Yeah, you're rebellious, but I don't recognize that anymore. I don't remember that anymore. Instead, I see you the way I see Jesus, my son you are righteous because I say you are. So when you look in the mirror and you see the effects of sin in your life, age, decrepitude, sickness, whatever, that's not the true you. That's the you that's born in sin. That's the you that's under the power of death and the authority of of death. That's not the true you though. The true you is the one for whom Jesus died to redeem. And you're a baptized child now. You're a heavenly father. And therefore, everything that is Jesus is yours. And everything that's yours is Jesus's. We call it joyous change or the great flip, as you noted previously. It's funny. As you were like getting there, I reached around my computer and I grabbed my phone. I'm like, that's, that's, you're, you're describing, you're setting me up for the great flip. Right. You already know that because that's Martin Luther called it the great exchange. But, right. and for some reason, I cannot memorize it. Like I have to look it up every time. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what is my problem? I'm usually pretty good at kind of memorizing little Bible verses here and there, but I have to actually look at it for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And um, I always, you know, when I talk to the girls, I always say, you know, not only did we, we, we somehow we learned that, you know, Jesus, you know, died for our sin, but that he became our sin just takes on a whole new kind of like mind-blowing 100%. moment. and um, Well, you so, can't talk about sin anymore as if it's your personal property. You have to talk about it as, well, it's Jesus now. Yeah. He takes, he claims that. So therefore, even in your quote-unquote confession of sin, the end of that confession is always Jesus. It yeah. has to be, if it's yeah. a Christian confession. That's also then, we're set free now to own our sin too. Because our sin is Jesus. Jesus becomes our sin. So when Mm -hmm. I confess, I did this, I didn't love my neighbor, I didn't love God, whatever it might be, that's on Jesus too. And that's my responsibility, that's my job as your pastor, is to say, Jesus died for that too. You're you're free from, you're out from underneath that too. Free to do what? Free to go love your neighbor in whatever way God calls you to love your neighbor, whether it be defending your neighbor as a soldier or law enforcement, whether it be teaching your neighbor as a professor or instructor in whatever vocation that takes on, as a doctor or nurse, as a parent, whatever it might be. 
whatever vocation you're called to serve your neighbor, love your neighbor in, do it and enjoy it because it's a gift now. Because you don't have to worry about, well, if I'm not, if I don't measure up as a dad and I fail my kids, I don't get to go to heaven, right? No, wrong. Because you're not looking at the truth. And the truth is Jesus, who's nailed to the cross. As the prophet Isaiah says, when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. That's the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel and the point of 1517 and the point of all the work that I do in ministry is to point to Jesus and go, I was an atheist and a drug addict, and now I'm this guy. And depending on which side of the street you're standing on, maybe I'm worse than I was when I was an atheist and a drug addict. Maybe I'm better, but it doesn't matter in relation to God. It's not about good or better. It's about, are you in relation to Jesus or are you not? It's not about what we do. It's about what he does to establish that relationship of grace and peace with us. Name your book. When's it coming out? Called Crucifying Religion. Comes out in July now because we had to do some uh, extra editing just to I wanted to make the structure of the book better in the sense easier to read for. The, it's written for laity. It's not written academically because it's the book I wish someone would have handed me 22 years ago when I first walked into that cathedral in St. Paul for Good Friday, <laughs> where I was like, what God do I believe in? What's this Jesus stuff? What do I do now that I believe in God? How do I like what's worship for? Uh, how do I read the Bible? So that's really the book. The chapters are God, Jesus, worship, vocation and the Bible. And just explaining it anecdotally, a lot of what I've talked about on the podcast is in the book. And because I, I, I want to explain to people, this is how I came to this question, and this is why I came to this topic. Uh, there's three footnotes in the whole book. Again, like I said, it's 100, depending on how they, they package it, I wanted to keep it small so it's not even intimidating to look at. Mm-hmm. It's something you can pick up and read in a couple days and chew on and hand off to your friends and go, here, you need to read this. Because um, whether you agree or disagree with what I say in the book, I just want you to think. And I want you to ask that why question. Why do you believe in God? why Jesus as Savior, why worship the way you do, why do you do what you do in your vocation, and why do you read the Bible the way you do? And have you thought about these questions before? So it is, a lot of it's anecdotal, a lot of it's me having a conversation with the reader while we're going. I'll even ask questions of the reader as I'm going through the book, because they're questions that I asked myself 22 years ago. I still ask myself these questions, Mm -hmm. because I train with atheists and agnostics, and once they find out I'm a pastor, they have questions. Because as I pointed out to you uh, before I came on to record this, uh, one of the guys that I trained with that I was teaching on Saturday, he's Irish, which I love because when he found out what I, he said, he said to me after class, he's like, uh, you got big plans this week. And I said, well, I got to work. He's like, you mean like you work or you work, work? I'm like, no, I work every weekend's my busiest time of work. He's like, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a pastor. He's like, well. It's like, oh, snap. He's like, I'm gobsmacked. <laughs> I'm like, when an Irish man says gobsmacked, you just want him to say it over and over and over again because it sounds so good. <laughs> And he said, you know, on a list of things that I would have guessed you do, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't even on my list. And I said, it shouldn't be because I'm not here to evangelize you. I'm here to teach you jujitsu. But then he asked me how I became a pastor and how, and I said, well, I was an atheist and then I became a Christian. And he's like, well, I want to know about that then because he grew up Irish Roman Catholic in Ireland. So he's got all kinds of baggage that he's carrying around too. So it is that sense of, I grew up in this Christian religion, which if I take a step back with him and go, hey, your Christian religion is like any other religion because the basic teachings are the same as any other religion. But what I'm telling you I believe in isn't that. Do I pastor in a Christian religion? Yes. The church body, the institution that I'm attached to is a religion because it's not about grace. It's about self-preservation as every institution is. But within the institution, within the church body in which I serve, there are pastors like myself who are preaching the gospel and clinging to that Reformation 
theology of justification, the, the joyous exchange, and all these things that we've been talking about. So it's not, well, you have to leave the institution. There's no such thing. You can't leave an institution for this pure utopian church or this pure utopian training a cat, whatever it might be, the relationship. Those don't exist. So instead, you have to figure out, you have to play the game, as Jocko Willing says, and you've got to figure out how to accomplish your mission by playing the game to the best of your abilities within this institution and its rules and norms. And so even within the context of combat martial arts, then uh, the MMA people I train with, the fighters that I train with are all devout Christians. And I tell people that the hobbyists are the agnostics and atheists, but the fighters that I train with are all devout Christians. And there's a reason because, as they've said, when you're locked in a cage with a person who wants to push your nose through the back of your skull, if you haven't done a lot of really deep you know, conversation with yourself about the goal and purpose of your life and what you believe, that can be a very terrifying experience that you may never want to repeat again versus are you right with God? And do you know what your motivation is for stepping into that cage? And so they and I have a very theological conversation after class, whereas the atheists and agnostics, we have a very philosophical conversation that touches on theology because they're more interested in how did you get from A to B to C? And so I do have atheists and agnostics who come to Bible study and they do come to worship. Uh, one, because they want to engage in the conversation and because I'm open to it and I was an atheist, so I know where the motivation for their questions, I know where they're coming from. I can answer them sincerely and humbly and not, I'm not trying to quote unquote convert them because I don't believe that I can do that. That's all the work of the Holy Spirit. All I can do is I can point them to Jesus and go, this is why I believe what I believe. And here's where this is written down and codified for us. And and in that sense, I hope to cr- to create a, an opportunity to have the conversation, both, like I said, in an earthly sense around combat martial arts and loving your neighbor and what that means to love your neighbor in that forum. But then in a theological and a heavenly salvation sense of the reason that I can have this experience over here with jujitsu and Muay Thai is because I'm having this experience over here with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. This sets me free to love and serve you over here and be the best teacher and the best training partner and just the best man I can be for you. And no, I'm not trying to be this to you to prove something to God. Again, I'm not, I don't love you and I don't have this friendship with you and I'm not teaching you this way and I'm not trying to be humble because it's going to get me a, you know, a leg up with God. I'm doing it because I know I don't have to have a leg up with God. Mm-hmm. He's already said, I love you and this is how I love you. I love you in Jesus. So therefore in Jesus, I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm free. I'm free to go love my agnostic and atheist brothers and sisters, because they are. Because as I've said before, and this is true of my children too, when we're asked, well, what's your definition of friendship? What our definition of friendship is, if you won't bleed with me and you won't bleed for me, you're not my friend. Because the most intimate relationships I have are with people, I don't even know what they do for a job. I don't know where they live. Some of them, I don't even know their last name. Some of them, I don't even know their first name because they haven't been there long enough for me to care. But, and you know that, right? There, you mm-hmm. just, at a certain point, you realize, okay, if you're here longer than three months, I'll learn your name. And if you're here longer than six months, I'll get to know you. But I've seen so many people come and go in the three years I've been doing this that I get it. I'm almost like, I, I now understand when old combat vets tell me, yeah, when the new guys came in, if they didn't survive, like we, we just figured they were going to die. So we didn't want to get to know them and get attached personally. I get that mentality in a certain sense because you don't want to get attached to people and then have them leave. Because it's a very intimate relationship when you're grappling with another human being. As, as many have said, you can't hide on the mats. Your, your character and your personality will come out. It's a reality filter. So if you think you're strong but you're weak, that's going to come out. If you're weak, if you think you're weak but you're strong, that'll come out. Whatever you are, it comes out on the mats and you can't hide. 
so that forges a very intimate relationship, not only amongst my training partners, but with my kids, because I'm training with my kids. They're right there next to me. Their class is on that side of the wall. And then there's the doorway and the opening. And then there's my class, the adult class. So I can see them. They can see me. We're constantly interacting. We're rolling together at home. We're rolling together after class or before class to warm up. So that deepens the intimacy of our relationship as father and children. Mm-hmm. And then my wife suffers from several, she's actually one of the only people that can't do jujitsu because of some physical um, ailments and illnesses that she has, the disease that she has over in her ear. But yet jujitsu then has also brought us closer as husband and wife, because as she said, I'm more relaxed, I'm quieter, I'm much more giving than I've ever been. And I'm always thinking of her first. Mm-hmm. But I'm also that way, as my kids made the comment when we were driving home a couple months ago, I don't yell like I used to. And I said, oh, I used to yell a lot. And almost in unison, they went, oh, yeah, you used to yell a lot. <laughs> Versus now they say, you don't yell. You just look at us and you talk to us. And you give us the option between, do you want to roll with me for five minutes or do you want to go clean your room? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great new uh, parental right? I'm like, discipline. I'm not, but I'm not going to hurt you when we roll. And you're like, yeah, but you're so big and heavy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Donovan Riley, pastor, conference yeah. speaker, author, Band books, podcaster. Um, warrior priest. That's what I just, I sum it up now. I just say I'm a warrior priest because that's what I am. You are a warrior priest and father, uh, BJJ practitioner and coach now, teaching on the mat. Muay Thai practitioner and coach too. Yeah. I don't know how, again, it's, it, I don't understand how it happened. I just wanted to get to two classes a week and all of a sudden, three years later, I'm learning how are. to teach. Well, it's, a, it's an unbelievable privilege and pleasure to have discovered you and found you and now to actually get to speak with you. So thank you. Thank you you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. 